0: Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. My name is Cherry Lee. Uh, I want to welcome you this morning, whether you are a first-time guest or you've called the Oaks Church home for a long time now. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Titus chapter 2. We are continuing our series through the book of Titus uh, that we've entitled The Trellis. Uh, Now, I will tell you while you find Titus chapter 2. Uh, if you're a guest of ours, maybe you've been coming for a few weeks or this is your first time and you've never received a gift bag from us, I'd love to give you one of those at the Connect table in the back before you leave today. Uh, we would love to serve you in any way that we can. Now, as you find Titus 2, uh, uh, there, was, there was something I was reminded of as I was preparing for the passage this week. Um, many of you know that... Uh, this past week or week before was the last day of school for a lot of our elementary, middle, and high school students. And yes, that's right, we can, we can celebrate that. Um, it, was, it was you know kind of the, uh, the last day of school for our oldest son, Brooks, who's in kindergarten. And we've started a tradition each year since he started preschool where we take a picture the first day of school, and then we take a picture the last day of school. And the interesting thing about doing that is that there are gradual changes that happen daily throughout the entire year that basically go unnoticed. Uh, there's changes in height, changes in you know, facial features and kind of losing the baby face. There are changes in interests and things that they enjoy doing. But you, you almost can't tell that all of these changes are taking place until you review a, a picture of the first day and the last day of school at the same time, side by side. And so I wanted to put that picture up. Yeah, so that's, that's Brooks. That's our oldest. And so you can just see like his legs grew like four foot in, in a year. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, there's, there's also a picture of Brooks and Charlie together. So I know it's like such a dad move to begin a sermon with just showing pictures of your kids. But, but here we are. Now, now, I bring that up because the Christian life is so similar. Today, we're going to, going to talk about maturing as disciples And we've often said here at the Oaks that healthy Christians grow and growing Christians change. And the life that you have as a Christian closely resembles the physical life that we have of being born and then maturing throughout your life. Uh, in John 3, Jesus, whenever he was talking about becoming a, a person of God, whenever he's talking about having that faith that saves, the moment that you commit your life to Christ, he calls it being born again. And the moment that you repent of your sins, that you turn from your sins and turn to Christ, you become a spiritual infant. And from that moment on, you're developing, you're maturing. Scripture calls that sanctification. Sanctification. It's this gradual process of each day looking and acting more and more like Jesus. Now, as that maturation continues, as you continue to mature in the gospel, your your growth eventually becomes one of multiplication. Your maturity eventually becomes one in which you are making more disciples. And you're, you're helping others mature along in the faith. Uh, Let's return to the analogy of my family again. Now, let's say 30 years from now, you were to come up to me and you would say, wow, Terry Lee, your family is really growing. Now what would that mean? Uh, Hopefully that would not mean that Brooks and Charlie are like 30 feet tall and they have like monstrous hands, they're just become these giant people, right? But at the trajectory we're going, it almost seemed like that. No eventually, maturity becomes multiplication. And if you were to say that to me 30 years from now, it would most likely mean that now my children are full-grown adults, and maybe my boys are even fathers who have children, and now those children are growing into maturity. In the Christian life, the church is the same way, that you become a spiritual infant whenever you place your faith in Christ, that you're maturing but you also multiply those who walk with God. I mean, think about the command that God gave gave Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, be fruitful and multiply, right? Fill the earth. And we almost have an echo of that in the church. Whenever Jesus talks to his disciples in Matthew 28, and he says, go and make disciples, be fruitful and multiply, share the good news that you have received so that others might receive it as well. And with that being Christ's last command to his disciples at the Oaks, our aim specifically this year is to make that our first priority. And so what we're going to find in Titus chapter two is something that encapsulates much of what has been our annual theme this year to make, to mature and to multiply. And so to summarize Titus two, one through 10 in a single sentence, it would be this, that maturing disciples make and multiply disciples. Now, today we're going to talk a lot about uh, what a mature disciple looks like. What does it look like for you to be actively growing in the faith? And then also, what does it look like for you to take seriously the role that God has entrusted to you to help others mature in the faith? Now, just to bring you up to speed where we're jumping in in Titus. Now, Paul and Titus went on a missionary journey to the island of Crete. They shared the gospel there. Many people came to faith in Christ. There were these churches that sprang up all throughout the island of Crete. And then Paul continued the journey while leaving Titus there so that Titus could, as verse 5 says, bring about order to the churches that were there, establish leadership, teach sound doctrine so that the believers there would be matured so that they could then make more disciples and help others multiply as disciple makers. Now, with all of that being said, let's look at Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. God's word says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This section, verses 1 through 10 is all about the church, specifically discipleship in the church. And what is the church? The church is a community committed to helping one another follow Jesus. What does it mean to be a part of a church? It means that you are a part of a community that is committed to helping one another follow Jesus. Now let's walk through this verse by verse. In verse one, it begins with this contrast, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, why would Paul say that to Titus? Because he has been talking just before this in chapter one about false teachers who had come in and they were kind of spreading these lies of legalism that you had to keep certain uh, rules from Judaism, that you had to practice dietary restrictions and observe specific holidays if you wanted to be right with God. And now... Paul is looking at Titus and he's saying, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The imperative verb there is teach. He's contrasting him. This, this is emphatic. But you, Titus, be different than those false teachers around you. Now, this is interesting. Whenever we remember the cultural profile of the average Cretan, do you remember what we read in chapter one? We read the quote of, Uh, Epimenides, where he says that the Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, how do you change someone that has such a licentious lifestyle, driven by their own pleasures, giving into hedonism, indulging whatever they desire? Now, you would say, surely, if you were going to, you know, change somebody like that, you would need to have a very strict moral code. You would need a detailed list of do's and don'ts. You would really have to turn up the volume on any behavior modification techniques. And, and yet, what does Paul say to do? He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. If you really wanna change the behavior of these people who are known for spreading lies and just giving in to their own desires, you don't need more rules. Thousands of rules would not change their heart, but you know what would? Sound doctrine, the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms us from the inside out. Think of it like this. I want you to imagine a straight aluminum bar for a moment, a straight aluminum bar, let's say it's two inches thick and that bar represents your heart. Now imagine that that steel bar needs to be formed into a perfect circle. And that perfect circle represents holiness. Now there are two ways to try and do this. There are two ways to try to try to get that bar into that perfect circle, which is holiness. First, you can try to bend the bar. And you can try with all your might to bend that bar into a perfect circle. And that's exactly what religion does. You see, it tries to bend your heart with external rules, behavior modification, and even guilt. And yet we know that it won't work. At the moment that the pressure is released, uh, the moment that you no longer have that rigid uh, code around you, or or you're not trying to fit in with those people, or you don't feel the cultural pressure maybe uh, of the people that you are around, the moment that that pressure is gone, the bar will just snap back into its original position. But there's another way to get that bar into the perfect circle, into that shape of holiness, the alternative is to heat up that bar, to melt it to the point that that aluminum is now a liquid, to then pour that same aluminum into a cast that is a perfect circle. And when that metal cools and returns to its original temperature, it will be in a perfect circle. And that's exactly what the gospel does to us. Whenever we feel the weight of God's law and our inability to keep it, it begins to melt our hearts. Whenever we see the compassion of our king, who is Christ, who left his throne on heaven, to not only endure suffering as we know it, but to endure excruciating suffering on the cross, the cross to redeem us from our sins. Whenever we see the power of his resurrection, it melts our hearts. And then we're conformed into the image of Christ so that our desires change, our will changes, the actions that we desire to live in and be obedient to now change. That's why Paul says here, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach the actions that accord with sound doctrine, but don't for a second think that this does not require the power of the gospel to melt down your heart, to reshape it, and to conform it into the image of Christ. And so that's exactly what we will see here, not just a list of do's and don'ts, but the new identity that we now have in Christ being lived out in this gospel-shaped community. We'll find in the verses that follow here that Paul specifically mentions four different groups of people. He's gonna mention older men, and older women. He's gonna mention younger women and younger men. Now, the reason that he is doing that is to give us physical examples of what maturing disciples look like in the church. Now, remember that this is important because an important theme throughout the book of Titus is the relationship between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? That's the technical way to say that what you believe shapes how you behave. Uh, There is this uh, undeniable relationship between faith and practice, and that is being fleshed out here in Titus 2 chapters 1 through 10, which leads us to the first of, of seven observations that I want to make about discipleship this morning. And the first is that discipleship consists of information and application, Discipleship consists of both information, things that you need to know and learn, and application, things that you need to do and apply. There's a reason that doctors have a residency after med school, because they need a place to practice what they have learned in the classroom. There's a reason that if you are a student at University of Cincinnati, then a big part of your education is having a co-op where you can have co-workers, where you can apply the techniques that you are learning in the classroom. Discipleship is much the same way. What is learned and absorbed by our heads must be worked out in our hands. So it's good to be in the systematic theology equipped class and learn about the sovereignty of God. But it's also good to apply that throughout the week. Whenever you know that the stock market is unstable and you don't need to nervously Crippled by anxiety, check your accounts every second of every day. It's good to read good books, but it's also good to be a good neighbor. Discipleship requires information and application, which is exactly why Paul wrote to Titus. We saw that in verse one that he's writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for their knowledge that accords with godliness. And we find that verses one through 10 are extremely practical because Paul is going to address our thought life, our reputation, our consistency as Christians. He's gonna address addiction, relationships, marriage, parenting, respect, lust, gossip, anger, hypocrisy, conflict, and public relations. We need to saturate our hearts and minds with the truths that we find in Titus 2 chapters 1 through 10. And as he addresses these four different groups of people, the second observation about discipleship becomes apparent. The discipleship thrives in diversity. Think about it. He's going to mention four different age groups so that in their interdependent relationship, they can have an eternal impact on one another. We know that this church consisted of both Jew and Gentile from different religious and ethnic backgrounds, completely different upbringings in many different ways. He's going to address bond servants at the end of this passage, showing that there are people of different status, all a part of the same church body. Now, why is that so helpful for us? It's because we are a community that has been given this task to make a collective effort for one another's sanctification, that you in, in your life can be a part of the growth of another person. As we've often said, God has designed us to be better together. And what we find in this passage is that there are many different ways at many different times and many different places that you will be grown in your relationship with the Lord. That brings us to the third observation, that discipleship isn't always linear. That maturity in Christ, that growing in Christ is often as much caught as it is taught. This is why our missional community groups, aren't divided up by age or the location that you live in or the life stage that you're in. Because we believe that there is beauty in learning from one another. As you hear someone confess sin that perhaps you didn't realize you were struggling with yourself and you think, oh, like the Lord is drawing me into a repentant heart through their confession. Whenever you're hearing what someone else is learning from scripture, you yourself are learning how to interpret scripture and you're being grown in the faith. You become compassionate toward one another. You have a context in which to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Discipleship is not as simple as maturity 101, 102, 103, and so on. But it happens almost in, a, uh, in a, an organized and organic way in the life of the church. Now, with all that being said, we read in verse 2 that Paul directs Titus as he teaches what accords with sound doctrine to teach the older men to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith in love and in steadfastness. And then in verse three, to teach the older women likewise. I want you to to take note of the instruction to older men and women in the church. Now, why is this so important for you? I I think as a, a congregation, That typically is fairly young, we could be tempted to overlook this command. We could just be tempted to say, hey, you know what? This doesn't apply to me. Uh, I'm young enough that, you know, I don't really know if I need to listen. Maybe I'll just tune out for a little bit. But what you need to understand is that these traits don't come about overnight. You're not going to say, whenever, you know, you have your 50th birthday, oh, you know what? Where was something in Titus 2? Maybe I should go look at that. No. Right now, the daily habits that you form in your life as a 22-year-old will shape the ability to be this kind of man in your 50s and 60s. So commit to a genuine and deepening relationship with the Lord now so that God can use you in fruitfulness as you seek to live these things out in the future. Now, what about those that are in the older category? I read one commentary this week, and it said that Paul was most likely considering any men that were over the age of 30 to be in the older category. Uh, So being 32, I threw that commentary across the room and said, this this can't be right. No, I'm just kidding. I was like, okay. So, so, So what if you are in the older category? I believe this is important. Because often people lose their sense of meaning and purpose as they age. This isn't always the case, but I think genuinely, or typically in our society, that's society, that's the case. But in the church, the years after you retire might be the years that your greatest work in the kingdom of God get done. When people are no longer driving little ones to soccer practice, whenever they're not crushing the same fitness goals that they used to, whenever they're not running a company, They can believe the lie that they don't have much to offer anymore. But because of the way that God has designed the church, if you're in this category, your flexible schedule, your life experience and your wisdom can all be leveraged for God's glory in generations to come. So don't idly waste some of the greatest years that God could be using in your life and ministry to influence others in the faith. Anytime I think about this, I'm reminded of this couple in their sixties who lived in Panama city, Florida, whenever Abby and I were getting ready to move here to plant the Oaks, they had their RV on the market. They were trying to sell it. And we came and we said, Hey, we're moving to Cincinnati to try to plant a church. And they said, we will move to Cincinnati in our RV. We will live there for a year to be close friends and your support system while you start the Oaks church. And we just couldn't believe that people in their retired years with close friendships there would sacrifice a year to do that. But they were eager to be a part of what God was doing, uh, what God was doing here in Cincinnati and what God is still doing that has their fingerprints on it. So don't shortchange what God could be doing in your life now and for many years to come. Now, Paul begins teaching older men, and he gives a couple traits here. That they would be sober minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and instead fastness. Now let's walk through those each in turn. What does it mean to be sober minded? It means to walk with wisdom. You're not driven by extravagance or just kind of rash thinking at the spur of the moment. They should be dignified. In the Cretan culture, this this would have completely gone against the typical stereotype for an older man. But these men in the church, they were to be honorable. They should be self-controlled. Now, I want to spend a little bit more time on self-control here because self-control is a trait that is given to each of the four groups in this passage. It's given repeatedly, actually, throughout the entire book of Titus. I think this was partially because self-control was not very common on the island of Crete, but we admit that self-control is just as much a struggle today as it was in the first century. So, Paul is commanding, that we be governed by God and not the desire to indulge w- whatever we want in the moment, that we should be self-controlled. Now, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's the last of the fruit of the Spirit that is mentioned, and it's the aim of every Christian. Now, now try to follow me here because I feel like whenever, whenever I understood this, I felt like it had a great impact on my life. I think if we are honest, we would admit that we want control, right? You and I, we want to be in control, but we often lack self-control. So we wanna control everything, don't we? We wanna control our future. We want to control how bad our allergies are. We want to control the mood of people around us, especially if it seems to inconvenience us. We want that kind of control. But you know what that's actually called? Sovereignty. And sovereignty belongs to God alone. What God calls you to is self-control. That's what we often lack, isn't it? We lack the discipline to to manage our time well, to say no to seconds or thirds whenever the food tastes really good. We lack self-control whenever YouTube just wants to play that next priority-robbing video. And guess what? You are not responsible for the entire universe, but you are responsible for you. God commands you to be self-controlled and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he enables you to be a good steward of your time, your money, your desires and priorities. So exhibit the fruit of the spirit and be self-controlled for the glory of God. The fourth, fourth trait that is mentioned here is one of soundness and it's given kind of three different aspects Sound in faith, that is a personal, vibrant relationship with the Lord. Sound in love, that is a love that is genuine, not artificial. That is a love for neighbor, that is not just kind of driven by reciprocity. What can I get out of this? It's not manipulative. Sound in steadfastness. This means that on the mountaintops or in the valley, you have resolved that the Lord is your God. That you will not be shaken. that you will not be tossed to and fro, but that you will resolve. Even as the disciples confessed before Jesus whenever others walked away, and he said, would you too go? And they say, Lord, to whom else would we go? And so in the valley, I will be on my knees, on my face, in front of the word of God, hearing the voice of God. And in moments of rejoicing and praise, I will be there again. We're those who resolve in steadfastness, that the Lord is our God, and we will look to no other. So that describes the older man. In verse 3, then, Paul turns his attention to the older women. He says, "...likewise they are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good." Now, if, if you're a woman and uh, these traits are something you want to dig into a little bit deeper, there's a really good book called Adorned by Nancy Lee DeMoss Wolgamoth. Uh, I think that's how you say her last name, but it's really good. I would, I would highly recommend you pick it up. Now, as we look at the instructions that Paul gives here to older women, we have to understand that Paul addressing older women in this passage and then instructing Older women in this passage is a means of honoring them and valuing them in a way that was unusual in the first century. In a Greco-Roman society, uh, we saw from the very beginning of Christ's ministry that He honors women, and here we find in the church that they are elevated to this position of modeling godliness for younger women around them. And then Paul begins his instruction to older women. And I think it's worth noting here that Paul is, is teaching older women and older men through Titus. And, and as I, you know, kind of wrestled with that this week, it reminded me that even in your old age, you will not outgrow your need for the gospel that you never graduate from your need to confess sin and to return daily to the cross, but be reminded of the hope that the empty tomb offers. The gospel is not just one lesson in the Christian life that you then ace and move on from in the moment of conversion. The gospel is the entire classroom that you learn every single thing that God offers to you throughout the Christian life. So here we see that older men older women are taught in line with the gospel and you and I will be until our faith becomes sight the word likewise there in verse 3 ties what paul is teaching to titus to what paul is or to what titus is supposed to teach each person in the church the first characteristic that we see of these older women is that they are to be reverent in behavior now, the reverence that is referenced here is most likely pointing toward the relationship that these older women would have with God. They walk with the Lord. In the Greek word that is used here, I found this so fascinating this week, for, for reverence is suitable for the temple. Now, New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberg explains that there was a temple to the goddess Athena in Gorton, which was the capital city of the island of Crete. And there's historical evidence that young women who grew up in Crete were required to give votive offerings, so to go and to sacrifice something to the goddess, of Ath- the goddess Athena as a part of their education, as a part of their uh, just kind of growing up in that society. And when they did that, they had to be suitable for the temple. This word that is used here, they had to be reverent to perform their ritual offering. And that was a matter of what they wore, Uh, what they said, the actions that they partook in, and the offering that they gave. And now Paul is using that same concept and he is redeeming it. He's redeeming that word for the woman that has been rescued from the life of offering false gods the worship that she was created to give the one true God. And now If you are a woman who is seeking to apply this passage to your life, you realize that this reverence invites you to worship the Lord your God, in which the entire world is a temple to give glory and praise to Him. This means that you no longer worship the demanding false gods of beauty, approval, and perfection. No, you belong to God and you are his daughter. So you can behave in a way that now displays that you believe that you belong fully to him. And that is where you derive your value. That is where you derive your purpose and worth in the world. You see this trait of reverence is now worked out in Titus 2 by pointing to a contrast between the things that they are not. They're reverent in behavior, they're not slanderers or slaves to much wine. We've we've talked at length about this tendency in Cretan culture to just kind of do what you want when you want, and here Paul is cautioning these older women to live in a way where they slander others or where they're slaves to wine. This word that is used for slander here is uh, diabolos. It's the word in which we get devil. In our language. It's used 34 times in the New Testament to describe Satan and his speech. Here Paul is saying, your words matter. Think about James 3. We must tame the tongue, because it can it can unleash sparks that are like lighting an entire dry forest on fire. It can have a devastating impact. So Paul is saying that that these older women should not be slanderers. They should use their words wisely, and each of us should heed that advice. Not only that, he says that they should not be slaves to much wine. I think it's helpful to emphasize that Paul says much wine, right? We don't want to create laws where God has not, and in moderation, alcohol can be enjoyed. However, we must also show great caution here to many alcohol ensnares and enslaves. And I think undoubtedly in a room of this size, many of you are probably battling this addiction right now in some form or fashion. Maybe you've battled it in the past. Hear me pastorally. Don't let that lead you to think that you are somehow worse than someone else or that you are weaker than other people. Why would I say that? Because the Bible literally says that alcohol can easily enslave someone. That's why Paul's writing this. He's saying, be aware, be on guard to not be a slave to much wine because alcohol can easily enslave. It's just what it does. And I believe that because Paul gives this command, you can also know that there is a ton of hope here for anyone that is enslaved in any addiction to anything because God promises to supply the courage and strength that you need to enjoy the freedom that Christ has purchased for you on the cross. So take the next step during communion to say, Lord, I am a slave. Maybe it's not to alcohol, but something else to say, Lord, free me from this addiction. Maybe you would come and and talk to me or one of our other elders. Maybe you would speak to a friend that you have come here with. But here's the reality, that sin can enslave in many different ways. And this is one of the things that Paul directly cautions Titus about, to speak to these women about here. And it is just as important for us to realize that in 2023 as it is in the first century. Up to this point, in verse 3, Paul has told these older women what they should not be known for. You should not be a slanderer. You should not be someone who is enslaved to much wine. But in verse 4, he says what they should be known for. Verse 3, the end, they are to teach what is good, and so train the young women. How should they spend the maturity of their time by teaching what is good? The word that is used in verse 4 is train These older women should mentor younger women. This training typically doesn't take place in a lecture format, in a formal setting. No, this training often takes place life on life in missional community groups. As you're having conversations on serve teams, as you're grabbing coffee with one another throughout the week, as you're helping with parenting or various things that are going on in the life of one another, that you're seeing these attributes fleshed out and in that way, the younger women are being trained, they're being taught what is good by the older women. This leads to the fourth observation. The discipleship takes place in relationships. Spiritual maturity is a group project, and this is true for men and women of any life stage. We often say at the Oaks that your relationship with God is personal, but it is not individual. That In God's good design, we can move one another along in spiritual development. Attending for two hours on a Sunday morning is a great and essential component of your spiritual maturity. But life on life is the way that God has designed for growth to take place in His church, this community that is committed to helping one another follow Jesus maybe you've gone to a store at some point and there was a, a shirt, a dress that looked really good on a mannequin. And so you said, you know what? I think that would look really good on me. And so you buy it, you get it home, you're really excited. You're like, you know, hey, maybe I'm gonna you know, wear this on a date or, you know, maybe I'll wear it to a wedding or, you know, just you're really, you're really pumped to put this outfit on. And, and then you get it on and you're like this doesn't really, it's a little tight, or it doesn't really, you know, look, look on me like it did on the mannequin. And, and in that moment, you know, your, your bubbles burst, and you're feeling kind of sad. Why is that the case, right? Because that is not a, a good flesh and blood representation of what that article of clothing would look like on you. But if you've got a friend, this happened with me, Caden, Nick, and Drew, they, they got these, like, Carhartt hoodies that were waterproof and they looked so cozy and they're like two sizes too big. And they're wearing them. I'm like, Oh, where did you get that? Right? Like I, I have to have one of those. And you put it on and you're like, man, this is so good. Right? Because you've had this flesh and blood representation of man, like we're just pouring water on each other, just watching it roll off. And you're like, <laughs> it does that on yours. It does it on mine. This is amazing. Right? But it gives you this, this flesh and blood picture like, man, I know I'm not supposed to be selfish, but the way that you just moved your schedule around for your friends, man, that's, that's really helpful for me to see. You know, like, I know that we're called to be generous, but to see your grocery bill increase each month just so that you can have more people seated around your table that, that might be eating a meal alone, that's, that's really good for me to see. Discipleship takes place in relationships. It gives us a flesh and blood reality that shows what God could do in us. In verses 4 through 5, we see that Paul then uh, tells these older women to train the young women to love their husbands and children. Ultimately, this is all coming from the concept in verse 3, to teach what is good. Now, here's the question. Are we left to interpret what is good on our own? No. Because the false teachers in Crete would have said, you know what's good? Keeping all these religious rules, observing all of these holidays, not eating this, eating this. That's what's good, but that's wrong. The culture in Crete would have said, you know what's good? Whatever you wanna do, go do it. Be yourself, that's fine. You know, like create your own future, whatever, like try it cliche thing. And, but what is good? We let God define what is good. And it is here what accords with sound, doctrine. And these young women, they were commanded to love their husbands and children. And I think the order is important here in verse 4, because the greatest gift that you can give to your children is a healthy, stable marriage. Yes, love your children unconditionally, but as a husband or wife, prioritize your marriage. And as, as life Speeds up as you have kids, as there's all of these tasks, and you're trying to make sure that everybody's in the right place at the right time, there is a tendency to live life shoulder to shoulder. And I want to encourage you that as you live life accomplishing tasks shoulder to shoulder, that you also prioritize time face to face, that there is this mutual and intentional pursuit of one another that characterizes your marriage that you love one another. I also believe that this passage speaks to the unique and powerful influence that a wife and mother has to alter the tone of a home. As as a wife and as a mother, I think you have this unique, God-given ability to, to make your home, to contribute to your home being a place of mercy and grace, respect, patience, love, sacrifice, service, and what a gift that is to the rest of your family. In verse 5, Paul then brings up self-control again. We've spent a lot of time looking at that, so I want to move on. And then he instructs the young women to be pure. Here, this is spoken of to the women, to the younger women, but it's applicable for each of us for male and female, husband and wife, that if you are married, you should be faithfully committed to one another. If you are single, then this means that you should protect your purity, protect your purity from premarital sex, from explicit content, or even something that might seem harmless, like being too quick to develop emotionally strong attachments to someone and be vulnerable in that way too quickly. I'm also aware that speaking about purity can bring shame upon people. It can bring shame because many have been the victim of the abuse of another. Maybe whenever you see a command here to be pure, you deal with shame because you feel like your purity was stolen because you have been sinned against. Let this be a comfort to you. You are not defined by the sin of another. God can and will redeem and restore your purity for your future spouse or your current spouse. Maybe that's not your situation, but maybe you, as we talk about purity, feel shame as well because you've gone too far. Maybe you feel the shame of crossing sexual boundaries before marriage. And to you, I'll say this, know that your sin never has the last word. Because Christ's tomb is empty, complete forgiveness and righteousness are yours for the taking. You are now washed pure. You are adorned with the honor of the bride of Christ on her wedding day. Because of what Christ has purchased for you. If you have repented, confessed your sin, and trusted in him. Now verse five also contains a couple phrases that raise some eyebrows and I recognize this. You know, saying the word submissive in the 21st century is like holding a short fused stick of dynamite. And as if that wasn't enough, we also find the phrase working at home. And now we've, uh, we've found a minefield right here in the middle of verse 5. So what do we make of all this? Well, I'm out of time. See you next week. Uh, <laughs> right? Hunter, you got this next week, you know? Uh, All right, now let's resolve at the outset that on any issue, we will place ourselves under the authority of God's Word. God's Word is our highest authority. So regardless of personal preference or cultural pressure, we will submit to the Word of God. We're all there, right? We're getting there. Second, we must recognize that Paul was writing in the first century He was writing in a Greco-Roman culture that was highly influenced by Judaism. And that's particularly helpful whenever we consider the phrase working in the home. What do I mean by that? It's because the early church didn't wrestle with the modern debate of being a career woman versus a homemaker or a stay-at-home mom. I'm not sidestepping the issue, but I think this is a helpful distinction for us to make. Because in this time period, every woman worked within the home to meet the family's needs and to take care of the children. And every man worked to either produce crops or to trade in the markets. The sons would go to work with dad. The daughters would stay at home with mom. That was the context in which they lived out their lives. So how do we apply that in 2023? What Paul is getting at is that regardless of a woman's formal occupation, they should prioritize their family above all else, above any other responsibility that they have. I don't believe that this passage is condemning women with professional careers. I think if you look at Proverbs 31, then it describes a woman that manages and helps provide for the family. I think that there's freedom here for the path that your family decides to choose. However, I would be remiss if we didn't examine some of the different factors that come into play as you make this decision. If you have children and you're a mother, your children are not school-aged yet, you have to consider, how am I seeking to ensure my child's care? How am I seeking to guard them from worldly influences? And how am I seeking to nurture them in the Lord? And that applies to the books that you read at home the people who watch them during the day, or your bedtime routine each night. Uh, This is comprehensive in all of life. Now, if you have children, but you've chosen to work outside the home, you must examine, what is my primary motivation for doing so? What is my primary motivation for us structuring our family in this way? So maybe you work outside of the home because you have someone that you can trust, that you can watch your that can watch your children throughout the day. That can be a daycare, that can be a grandparent, but there's someone that you can trust and you enjoy serving others in the workplace. It gives you a context in which you can meet people, share the gospel. It gives you a second stream of income so that you can meet financial needs and be generous. Maybe your children are at school during the day and you still have the ability to spend time with them in the morning before they go to school and at night, whenever they return. If all of those uh, things are true and you've said, you know what, my husband and I, we've prayed about it. This is what's best for our family. I think there's freedom there for you to pursue that. I think there can also be wrong motivations. Maybe you'd say, you know what, I, I think that I would, I would love to be at home with my kids before they go to school, but right now our, our lifestyle demands that we have two incomes. And then the question would be, well, is there a way to alter your current lifestyle so that you can prioritize discipleship in those early years? That's worth considering. Maybe, maybe you would say, well, you know I what, would, I would love to have time to disciple younger women in the church and to spend time with my, my children, you know, whenever, as soon as they like come home from school, I wanna be in the car pickup line, but I'm just worried about what people will think if I don't use my degree. Or, or if, I'm, if I become a stay-at-home mom, what will people think about me? Will that make me less than in someone's eyes? But those aren't good reasons or motivations to, to stay at home. And so I think what, where, however you're weighing this, the motivation must be one in which you're saying, I wanna honor the Lord with my vocation that God has called me to and to the children that he's entrusted me with. Or I want to honor the Lord and the position that he has me now in the home. And I want to be faithful there. You can be faithful to the Lord in both ways. Regardless of where you land on this issue, here's the fact. Our kids grow up way too fast. And the world is doing everything that they can to influence them. So the moments that we have with them, we must make matter. Whether you're a father, mother, you're working in the home, hybrid, remote, full-time, part-time, God has entrusted you with your children and this is a great and holy calling. Now, if you're here and you're a spouse or you're a parent, I want you to know that the home is where you fulfill your highest earthly calling. Some of you might not be there yet, but one day you most likely will be. I want you to know that if you walk into your workplace tomorrow and you were to give your two weeks notice, there is a great chance that they might not even need you to complete your two weeks, that they will replace you before your two weeks is up. And there are some people there that might miss you, but you can be replaced in your workplace. You know where you can't be replaced? As the spouse to your husband or wife, because God has given you that covenant marriage to steward well. You know where you can't be replaced? As the father or mother to your children. If you're a parent, the home is your first mission field. This is your highest earthly calling if you are married or you have children. So don't neglect your family for work. Don't trade in what God has called you to for some worldly concept of success. But be one who loves your husband, your children, your wife, and those that God has called you to raise in your own Home. Now, before we make our way completely out of the minefield, let's consider the command for wives to be submissive to their own husbands. And if you're looking at the time, don't worry, we won't finish all 10 of these verses. I'll be back next week. What does it mean for wives to be submissive to their own husbands? Well, first, notice that the command is, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. This is not women be submissive to men. That's not what's being communicated here by Paul or at anywhere else in Scripture. This is a command for women to submit to their own husbands. And I know that submit can be a scary word, and we wonder what that looks like. Um, does that mean I just have to do everything that my husband says? No, that's not commanded in scripture. One of the observations that uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss makes in her book, Adorn, is that every single time that submitting is uh, commanded for a wife, the call to love or to um, act in a godly way is, is commanded of the husband. And so we find that these things go hand in hand. Submitting does not mean that men are better or smarter. It simply means that every home needs a leader, and God has designated that role to the husband in the home. Husbands, let me say this. Make this command a joy for your wife to obey. So don't abuse the authority that God has given you in the home, and don't abdicate the leadership that God has given you in the home by just getting home and sinking into your lazy boy in front of the TV. God has given you a high and holy calling to lead your wife well. This means that you lead her in every way, lead her spiritually. You're concerned about the spiritual health of your wife. This means that husbands and wives should worship together, should be a part of the same church. You should care about one another's devotions. You should be nurturing one another along in the faith. This means that you should have conversations about the Lord together. Yes, the wife is called here to submit to her husband, but the husband is also called to sacrificially serve his wife at the expense of himself. Sometimes people, especially during premarital counseling, they're like, how does this work in your marriage? Well, I'll give you a concrete example from this week. Okay, so Thursday, Abby and I go mattress shopping with our children, which was like a terrible idea. They're like jumping on, they literally think we took them to urban air, you know, and you're just like, (laughs) this is not sky zone. Get off the $3,000 mattress. And, uh, and so we're, we're there, we're like trying to test this out. And the salesperson like looks right over you and they're like, is that, are you a side sleeper? And you're like, this is the weirdest experience ever. Okay. So you're, you're sitting there, you're trying to figure this out. Well, we're there for like an hour and a half. And then Abby that night, she's like, you know what, you kind of know what I, what, you know, which ones I liked. And so you just make the decision, right? Wow. Like I have this authority that God has granted me, and, uh, but, but she's trusting me. And so what happens? Well, I know like, she trusts me. She's going to be happy with whichever one I pick. There were two that we were kind of in between, one she liked a little bit more, one that I liked a little bit more. And so what do I do? Well, trying to be faithful to the passage I'm teaching this week, I end up spending $200 more than our budget was so that I can get the mattress that I think will perfectly serve my wife right? Now, this is is kind of a silly example. And at the same time, we recognize that the calling of a husband should be one to lay down your interests, your preferences, for the good of your wife and for the glory of God. And so, wives, women looking to be married, I I, I will say, if you're a wife, encourage your husband in this. Help him to lead well. If you're someone who's uh, desiring marriage, then make sure that the guy that you look to date and to be engaged to is a guy that is worth following because it is commanded in Scripture. Now, why does all of this matter? Because the world has created, or because God has created your relationship to your spouse to make the gospel known to the world. We read right here in verse 5 that these things are true, that the word of God may not be reviled, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Discipleship declares the good news of Jesus to the watching world. We live in a culture of shallow pursuits for self-help, trying to change ourselves through, you know, many different ways, apps on our phone, accountability groups, whatever it might be. But apart from the work of the gospel, we can't change And yet the gospel declares to the world as God brings about change in us, that the word of God is active and powerful, that it can bring about change, and that there is plenty of room to get in on this, that it is accessible to anyone who might believe. This is the gospel that we proclaim. I wanna end here, but point to where we will be next week. In verse 10, Paul is going to say that all of this, this lifestyle that you live, adorns the doctrine of God, that as you live out these traits, you make the beauty of the gospel evident to the world around you, that we were once dead in our sin, and because Christ died for us, we now live in him and are full of hope. This is the sound doctrine, which accords with godliness, and we will live for the glory of God. Let's pray.